Lord, we come before you and ask you to show us what you want us to see through this wonderful chapter or chapter of your your mercy and grace and the Messianic scripture here. And we ask you to show us what we are to see and guide and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot, black horses, and in the third chariot, white horses, and the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. And I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered unto me and said, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses which go therein forth to the north country, the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. And so they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he unto me that spoke unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. All right, we're going to look at this one. This one's a little more iffy. A lot of people have no idea what it's all about. Uh, and I'm going to show you what I think it's about, but I'm not sure because there's a lot of controversy on this first uh, vision. Um, but he sees four chariots leaving between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Well, this one, this first part is easy. Mountains of brass, we'll talk about judgment. Brass normally will talk about God's judgment. So these two, these four chariots are coming out of his judgment. Beyond that, there is a lot of speculation as to what the four chariots represent. Uh, some of, some of the people will tell you that these are the four kingdoms of Daniel. I don't see that. I don't know how they see it, but many, most of the commentators actually said these are the four kingdoms of Daniel, which are uh, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Greece, and Rome. I do not see that in, that, in this verse. <laughs> I don't know how they come up. One of the, a couple of them said that these are the four gospel messages, the four gospels. I think they're stretching again because it says four. Now, I do see the gospel in this, so I can understand where they're coming up with the four gospels, but that takes out all the four different horses and everything, and those colors mean something. The, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, yeah. except they're not the right colors, but, <laughs> but the same type of deal. The same type of deal, and actually the same symbology, I believe. Okay. So you're on the right track, I believe, on that one. Uh, I really believe that they are the four, that they represent four judgments from God and, and talk about the aspects of life on this world. Uh, because we look at this, the red horse usually represents war. And this red horse goes out and brings war. And we see in our, in our world, when we look at these four different horses, the, what they show is what our world goes through all the time. The white horse represents apparent peace. And the red and the, um, and the black horse is all about famine and pestilence. And then the, the grizzled 
And bay horse, which if you don't know those terms, means spotted and, and a reddish brown <laughs> horse, represents the idea of a mixture of good and bad. And this is what the world is without God. There's war. After war, there's a little bit of peace. And, and after war is usually pestilence and famine. And then in between war, pestilence, famine, and peace, there's times of mixed good and bad. And this is the way the world sees activities. The grizzled and bay? No. Oh, is a mix of good and bad. And the spotted, the spotted uh, bay horse with the different colors. Uh, so we see here that God is saying around the world, out of his judgment is going out basically dissatisfaction for people. And if you talk to the world, isn't that the way they see, people in the world see everything? Well, we have our good times. But bad times are just around the corner. And then there's going to be war. And after war comes the, the, the famine, and the hunger, and the pain of war. And then we might have a short period of time. But then, wars, then war and bad things are coming again. Uh, this is the way the world looks at it. And God says, these have gone out. This is what comes out of his judgment and before him. And he says, these are the four spirits of God coming out from before, the, before his presence. And in our fallen world, it is not a good place to be in the fallen world without God. There's nothing but depression. Now, even, even when you're in the middle of peace, when the world is in peace, they're looking for the next bad thing happening. And they just won't settle down in peace. Uh, and this is something that's very interesting. God said these animals, these, these spirits were to go to and fro walking to and fro amongst the world, back and forth, going forward and backward, uh, looking for what they do. And this kind of, this, that to and fro actually hit me pretty, pretty good. Uh, Satan when it goes about walking to and fro, you know, uh, looking for somebody to hurt and somebody to accuse. Uh, in right here in Zechariah chapter 1, starting at verse 8, the very first vision, he says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding a red horse, and stood among the myrtle trees that were at the bottom, and behind him were the red horses speckled in white. And he said, O oh, my Lord, what are these? And the angel said, I will show you what these are. The man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And again, that was war and peace, walking back and forth through the earth. God has this spirit going on. Now, what is the purpose of the lack of peace and the, and the war and the tribulations and everything? It is to draw people to him, the God of peace, the God of comfort. Now, unfortunately, most people get pushed away from God, at least initially from this. When bad things happen, we usually hear people blame God. You know, why does God let all these things happen? Well, the answer is simple. He wants to get your attention. At least you're thinking about God. You may be blaming him, but at least you're thinking about God at that point. Uh, but it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, we get what we deserve. We, we set up everything. We get consequences, and then we blame God for what happens to us. God, it's all your fault. You know, yeah, I know that I, uh, you know, went out and drove drunk and wrapped my car around the tree and hit five people, but it's all your fault. 
You know, and this, but we hear it all the time from people. You know, it's, it's God's fault. You know, the, the world, the, the insurance companies even have a clause in there that they don't protect against acts of God. What? Yeah. Weather. Weather. Any, any weather event is an act of God. So most places, uh, so pretty much anything, anything they technically, no, no, they don't always apply it to every rainstorm and all of that, or thunder or rain, you know, tree falling, but they have a clause in there that they're not liable for acts of God. So at any weather event, they could say on your home policy, we're not covering that tree that fell down on your house because it got blown over by, by a windstorm. Now, they don't usually do that far, but they have these earthquakes are part of that, floods. Usually they refer to earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. The big acts of God you know, that come through, they're not liable for those unless you buy flood insurance or tornado insurance or hurricane insurance. They will look at you and say, well, we're not, those, those aren't covered by us because uh, we can't handle, we can't, we can't stop. When God decides to do something, we can't stop it. Uh, they're, they're, it's, it's old and they don't usually use that term anymore but it's still in all the contracts uh, you know, so, but this is the world the world stands out and says it's God's fault and God is saying okay yes I'm sending them out and we, we remember when God sends trials and tribulations to his children he's trying to get them to realize that he's still in charge and trust in him when he sends it out to the world, he's trying to get their attention in the first place. In Revelation, we have 21 name, you know, events that are named in there between the seven bowls, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. 21 events that God is saying, I want your attention turned to me. In those 21 events, with just the ones that were named, 66% of the population of the world dies. That's a lot of people that are going to die for God to try to get people's attention. And most of them aren't going to listen. Most of them aren't going to listen. They're not going, they're not going to turn to God. They're just going to blame God. Those going on now. Yeah, and this is a big deal. And this is what happens even in our day. You know, major events do one of two things for, for people. They either drive them to God or further away. And we know this happened. Most of us have had something that probably drove us to God before we got saved. COVID is designed to probably get people to turn to God. Yeah. Now, did he create COVID? I don't think so, but he's allowing COVID to be a big deal because at the very least, it pushes people into examining their mortality and saying, you know what? I might just die. If I die, what comes afterwards? And that is the purpose of all these tribulations, all, this, all these problems is for people to face the fact that they are mortal. Because especially when we're young, we feel like we're invincible. Nothing can get me. I'm, never, I'm not going to die. Which is why, and even for us as adults, you know, older adults, we get to the point, that person died young. You know, and it is a shock to us when somebody dies young. And when you're young, I can remember doing stupid things because I was invincible. I, no, I wasn't, I wasn't going to get hurt. I could jump off. You know, I'd get up on the one-story building, jump off with no problem and not think twice about it. You know, I would do stupid things you know, uh, out there, and every one of us have done it. 
you know, because we were invincible. We were young. We're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're 20. We, we, we've got at least until we're 30 until we have to worry about being old. I remember when I thought 30 was. But that is a true statement, though. You know, all of us had that. And it's amazing to me how old is always older than we are. But like you said, when we're 20, 30 is old, we get to 30, 40 is old, we get to 40, 50 is old, we get to 50, 60 is old. I don't know, but I'm only getting to... <laughs> I'm only getting to 60, so I don't, know, I don't know if 70 is going to be what's looked at as old, but there has to be a point when you really actually recognize I'm, you know, I'm, I'm finally there. <laughs> but, yeah. but even then, you might, it might not be 10 years. It might be, okay, I'm 60, it's 65 is old, and 70 and 75, you know. Um, but there comes this point when God says he wants us to examine that we are limited, you know, and we are limited, even in the, even in the times we, for the patriarchs, when they lived to be, you know, a thousand years old, that still had a limit on their timeline. You know, you're only going to live to be a thousand. And, you know, uh, well, if you were in good health and had a good, good DNA structure that was, was healthy, it wouldn't be a bad deal. In our world, I wouldn't want to be lived to be a thousand. <laughs> Well, their, their DNA was a lot different. It was more pure. Adam and Eve were created with a pure DNA, and it only got washed out over the generations and had errors and, and destruction to the point of our day where our DNA is pretty brutally mangled, and I wouldn't want to live to be two or 300 years old with the DNA that we have and the world that we have. But we see here that God's saying, I want to get your attention. And I'm sending out the spirits to get your attention. I'm sending out these things to get your attention. Does God say that these things are good? No, but he's saying, I'm going to use them to get your attention. And this is something that we as Christians have to always remember. When we're attacked by the world, well, how can a good God let bad things happen? Well, first off, we deserve what happens to us because there's no such thing as a good person. Number two, God is using them to get our attention and saying, this is not the world you were created to live in. And I love the fact that when we get saved, this is not our home. And we get to finally realize this is not home. I am not looking at this being my home. I don't, I don't want to be happy in this world. I'm looking to heaven. I'm passing through. We're pilgrims. That's why I say when my mom passed away, she's home at last. Home. And ultimately, that's how we need to look at, for the death of a saint. They've gone home. They, they are no longer suffering on this world. They're seeing the face of Jesus, and they are at complete peace. They've got their glorified spirit, and they've been made perfect. They will not sin ever again after, after they die. Now, the lost will have problems for the rest of their life, but uh, the rest of their eternal existence. But we get a spirit that's free of sin, free of that entanglement. And what a beautiful thing this is that we get to be free of all those entanglements and know that we are now in perfection. And we can't even imagine what perfection is. Because we can think of the best things we can possibly think of. And even then, anything we think of is tainted by sin. God, what will it mean to be ruling cities? I have no idea. 
I know what I think of when we rule, rule cities and rule, rule over people and things. I can't think that that's what God's saying when he says you're going to rule over cities. Because he said the servant is the greatest. And I think that's going to be true even in heaven. To truly lead and be, be somebody in charge is to serve those that are under you. And the great thing about serving those that are under you is then they tend to serve back. So you end up with the best of both worlds. You're serving them, they serve you, and everybody is serving everybody, and it gets to be a very interesting, great experience in the body of Christ when everybody is serving. And this is the lovely thing about what he says. If everybody is serving, then everybody's getting their needs met. We can never get our needs met from just one person, but the body of Christ serving one another will meet needs, and we'll meet them fully because there'll be lots of people doing it. And this is the beauty when you see the body of Christ come together and truly do what they're supposed to do. Now, many bodies of Christ do not serve. They're looking to be served. They're looking to lord it over everybody. They're, they're looking down their noses at certain people that don't seem to you know, be as good as they are or you know, as perfect as they are. <laughs> uh, But, you know, if we're trying to serve and edify one another and love one another, that is the body of Christ in action. And this is what all of these trials do for us. They bring us to God. When when God sends a trial my way and I fall flat on my face, or even if I pass through it, I only pass through it because I turn to him, or I fall flat on my face and he picks me up and I'm still face to face with him. And this is the great news. He picks us up. He doesn't kick sand over us and say you're worthless and go back to the beginning and start all over. He picks us up and says, okay, we'll do better next time. And this is the beauty of somebody who's edifying that's building up. When a body member falls down, we pick them up and say, you'll you'll make it next time. You'll do better. You'll make it. And as we start this recovery program, that's something that's very important. These people in recovery, they're going to fall. They're going to fail, and they need to be lifted up. God's got you. You're forgiven. You're his child. Keep moving forward. You'll do better the next time. Or he will help you even better. He will help you get through the next time. Because that full surrender to Christ is what gives us victory. If we want to be victorious over any sin, then we have to be fully surrendered to God. And it takes a long time to learn to be fully surrendered. Because we don't like to surrender. The flesh does not like to surrender. You know, and this is why it's so funny because people will go, well, how do you get over this? I go, you surrender. Well, how do you surrender? You do it. <laughs> well, it sounds so hard. I go, it is until you do it. But you know what I have found over the years? When I finally surrender in whatever the area is, I go around kicking myself, saying, it was so simple to surrender. Why did I wait X number of weeks, days, months, years, decades? <laughs> you know, and you just end up looking at it and going, why did I wait so long to surrender? It was so simple to surrender. Probably. Same thing. Probably. Okay. 
True surrender, the biggest picture that I have of surrendering, we're inside this building, and the police surround the building and say, come out with your hands up. How do I surrender? I go out the door with my hands up. The problem is most of us don't want to go out the door with our hands up with a gangster inside saying, you're going you're gonna to have to take me. <laughs> All right. So what does God do? He starts lobbing in the tear gas. He starts getting, making us come out to surrender. And how does he do that? Through lots and lots of trials and tribulations and keeps putting us through until we finally say, God, I surrender. Or can go to Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I let him kill my flesh, which is, again, done by surrender. If I'm not surrendered and I don't give up, I don't let him put me on the cross, I don't let him kill my flesh, I fight tooth and nail and I keep running away every time he turns, it, you know, turns around to get a nail and a hammer, I, I run away from the cross, and I won't surrender, then life is miserable while I go through all these trials. When I finally just say, God, I surrender, I give up. Do with me as you want. And then we get the victory of that surrender. And you're right, sometimes I don't fully surrender. Okay, God, I'm coming out with my hands up. Whoop, I'm running back in. <laughs> Come and take me. <laughs> And it's really hard because how do we really truly surrender? We get into God's word enough that he changes the way we think. Because until we think the way God thinks about something, we won't surrender. Because we will justify, we will, tell, we will convince ourselves that we are right not to give up. You know, we will say, well, it's really not that bad. There are other people worse than me. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, I'm really not that much of a drunk. I only drink once a week. All weekend long, but, <laughs> but I only drink once a week. I, all Monday through Friday, I don't drink, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm really good. And we, you know, we laugh about that, but we know that's exactly what people say. You know, well, I'm not that bad. I, I only drink and get mellowed out every night. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wasted. But we justify and we will try to make it look that I'm not as bad as I really am. And when we finally get into God's word enough to see us as he sees us in that area, then we might be ready to finally surrender and think differently. And it doesn't matter what area it is. It can be any number of areas. I was a workaholic and still have workaholic tendencies to, to have to battle. I have tendencies to overdo things. I, I don't do things at, that, at uh, less than 120%, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I'm very glad I never got into drugs and alcohol, because I know for a fact that it would have been full throttle, and I, and I wouldn't have been no halfway. <laughs> halfway. It would have been completely and then some. So we look at this and say, God, what is it that you want? How am I to live? And that surrender comes from recognizing what God says about it. God says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And the problem is, 
even as Christians, we sometimes deceive ourselves into saying, well, you know what, I'm really not quite that bad. You know, I'm, I'm, better, than, I'm better than a lot of the people. You know, maybe I'm not as good as that, that uh, teacher over there or that uh, evangelist over there, but you know, God, I'm really, you know, I'm better than most of the church. You know, most of those church members, are, they're sinners, God. You know, they're, they're the ones you need to be going after. And the more we recognize what we are as sinners, the better off we're going to be. To get saved, the first thing we have to recognize is that I'm a sinner in the first place. To, to grow in Christ, I have to recognize that I am a sinner in need of Christ in that area of my life. And he is spending our entire life sanctifying us. When we come to Christ in, for salvation, he declares us perfect. Our positional truth is that we're perfect. God says we're perfect. Now, we're nowhere near to being perfect and won't be our entire life. God is sanctifying us. He takes one area and starts showing us, here's a problem. And here's a, here's a problem. Now, when we first start walking the, the walk of God, usually we fight tooth and nail for everything God tries to, tries to show us to get rid of. God, I like that too much. I don't want to get rid of that. You know, as you, and I've said, you know, when you get saved, there should be at least one or two things in your life that change drastically. And there was in my life, there were a couple of things that changed drastically. The rest of them have taken a long time. And some of those early ones would take decades <laughs> before I would finally surrender. I'm getting better. I don't usually take more than six months to a year to surrender anymore. And sometimes it's even quicker than that. I, I have gotten smarter in 50 years <laughs> with God. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and I still fight, but not near as long. And sometimes God says, you're going to do this, and I'm going, okay, God, what, what are we doing? <laughs> That's rare. <laughs> it's rare just to turn around and surrender. But the key for this is to surrender. God, I am just coming out. My hands are up. Do with me as you want. Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane just said, all right, here I am. Take me. He could have called the angels. He could have walked away. He could, you know, there were times that he just walked through the crowds that were ready to kill him and, and Garden of Gethsemane. He let them bind him and carry him off because he was following the Father to be crucified. There comes that time when we need to just say, God, I surrender. Bind me up. Put me on the cross. Whatever you need to do, I want this out of my life. And most of it comes from getting to know his word. And the more we know his word, the more we see how evil we are and the more we will surrender to him to, to get rid of that evil. And then he shows us a little deeper in our heart and we go, okay, God, is there any, in, any bottom to that heart? And Jeremiah says, no. <laughs> it, it's ugly and it gets uglier the deeper we go. But the strange thing is that ugliness that we see isn't the things that most people see. It isn't me going out and stealing from somebody's house or sleeping around it's the way I think, the way, I, the way that I act when nobody else is watching but God. And God says, oh, you had a lustful thought. Why are you having that lustful thought? You wanted to lie. You didn't lie. I, and congratulations on not lying, but you really, really wanted to lie. You really wanted to kill that person. I'm glad you didn't, but you really were angry enough that if you were you know, not watching yourself, you would have. 
you know, and all of a sudden we're dealing with those thoughts. <laughs> and God's saying, I want to clean up that part of your life. And this is why Jesus said the thoughts are just as bad. Not the consequences for the thought, but the thoughts between him and when God looks at us saying, you still broke the law, the law of God. And here he's saying these have gone out, and he says they went forth, they walked to and fro, and he says those that went to the north country and stayed, which was the black and the white, <laughs> quieted his soul, brought God rest. When God sees judgment fall, and the judgment falls on us, he usually backs off and says, okay, now, are you ready to come to me? And he backs off. He did it over and over in the scriptures. When judgment fell on the people, many times they responded. The book of Judges is full of this. They go off into sin, God judges them, they repent, and God says, okay, I'm satisfied for now. Knowing that they were going to fall again, <laughs> but he says, for now, I'm satisfied. God put the people of Israel in the promised land and they stayed. For 490 years, they stayed. And then God says, okay, you keep getting more and more wicked. Now I'm going to judge you. And he took them out of the promised land for 70 years because they were disobedient. And he says, now we're going to take you out of the land. And then he brought them back. And they got to stay in that land for about 300 years, 400 years, uh, 500 years. And then, he, then they disobeyed again, and he took them back out. And he brought his people back again for a third time <laughs> in 1948. They were brought back to their land for the third time. And this time, they haven't been as righteous when they first came in, so they're starting out worse. <laughs> but they're going to finally get to see Jesus when he returns and recognize him for who he is, the Messiah, after they go through a whole lot of hard times. The wonderful grace and mercy that God shows us. When we fall and he accepts our repentance, when we fall and he gives us mercy and lifts us back up and grace and keeps us in his family, it is beautiful to watch God work. When we deserve nothing but punishment and death, he says, I still love you. Jesus paid the debt. I still love you. I still see you as perfect. And this is the beauty. Once you're his, God the Father sees us as perfect. Even though we're not, even though we make lots of mistakes, he reaches down, pulls us up, and says, okay, you, I'm going to bring you right back to where you were. You fell off of step 10 on the ladder. I'm not making you go to the bottom of the ladder. I'm putting you right back on step 10 of the ladder. And that is the mercy of God. And this is why as we get to know his mercy and his love, it should motivate us to deal with other Christians the same way. We have this problem with seeing other Christians and saying, well, you don't deserve anything, so I'm going to put you back down at the bottom of the ladder because you, you don't belong up here at the top of the ladder. You fell. And God says, my grace puts them back up there. We need to be very careful. Now, does that mean we're going to trust somebody who keeps falling the same way? No. The trust is something that can be lost very easily. But to say God loves you and he still cares recognizing it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about God.
and what you allow God to do. Because we can't do anything unless it's God doing it through us in the first place. So if I fall in my flesh, God hasn't failed. God is still God, and when I get restored back to position, he can still do his work. Jonah gets in the boat, goes the wrong way, gets brought back to, back to Nineveh in one of the first submarines, <laughs> uh, comes out and, and repents. <laughs> I was wondering if anybody would catch that. <laughs> a very fishy submarine, yes. Goes to Nineveh, preaches a message, and the entire city repents. And he's mad. I mean, his message wasn't a very loving message. You know, uh, repent for in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. And I'm sure that he wasn't nice on the repent part, and he was rejoicing on the on the uh, destroy, destruction part, then he goes up on the mountain, the hillside and waits for God to destroy them, even after they've repented. So, yeah, God used him for every reason that he shouldn't have been used. He runs the other way and God brings him back. He gives a very hard message and he doesn't expect to be answered and he gets mad at God for, 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 for uh, saving the city. And God still used him. How many times does God use us when we definitely do not deserve to be used? You know, maybe we were thinking the wrong thoughts before we came to church to, to do it. You know, maybe we were, maybe we even actively did the wrong things right before, right before he used us and he still uses the person who's willing to step out and be used. This is this picture that he's doing. He's sending out all these things and he says, they're going to go through, the judgment's going to fall, and I'm going to be mollified. I'm, not, I'm going to be able to let them have some quiet. God is so patient with, his, with us. He's so patient with the lost. You know, we as Christians sometimes look at this world and how evil it's getting and going, God, how can you let these things keep going? And they keep going, <laughs> and they keep going. And, you're, and we look sometimes and go, God, how bad do things have to be before you bring judgment? You know, things have to be as bad as before the days of Noah. And we look around and go, God, how bad were the days of Noah? You know, we've got everybody doing what's right in their own eyes and lying and stealing and cheating and sleeping around and, and homosexuality and fornication and adultery and murder and theft. And you're going, God... <laughs> How bad is bad? And in the days of Noah, he said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We are so close to that. How, how much further do we have to go? I don't know. How long did he live? 120 years? 120 years after he told Noah that he was going to destroy the world. So you see they're building this ark, trying to tell these people, for 120 years. For 120 years, he was building an ark and preaching. And nobody listened. Probably getting worse than every passing day. And I thought he was nuts. You know, and here we are as a church. And we hear it all the time. Jesus is coming soon. Well, you guys have been saying that for 2,000 years. He's getting closer. One thing I know for absolute sure, every single day we are closer to the return of Jesus than the day before. Because he knows when he's returning. And every day we're getting closer to that day. It may still be a thousand years from now. I don't think it will be because the world is so bad. I can't imagine it, how bad things would be if it was a thousand years away. Uh, 
I can't believe that it's even 100 to 200 years away because, again, how bad will the world get? Now, if there's a revival, it may still be pushed off. And this is perfectly possible. The first and second great awakening in America, everybody looked around and said things were so evil that God has to bring judgment. And from what I look at history, there's nothing like it was today, but there was still the idea that everything is evil. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. Not to the extreme that it is today, but it was, it was in their day evil. The second great awakening, people were drunkards and, and, and uh, fornication and adultery were rampant. I don't know so much about homosexuality back in that period of time, but homosexuality is not new. Homosexuality has been the fall of every great nation. All through the Bible, we see evidences of homosexuality. And when we do see homosexuality, we also see violence associated with it. And what do we see in today's world? We see homosexuality. We see violence. We see all the other sexual sins starting to become prevalent. And the very amazing thing, and it was predicted even before this, before the Supreme Court said that the homosexuality was not it was unconstitutional to block homosexuality and immediately everybody wanted to start following into bestiality and and incest and pedophilia and 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 necrophilia and all these other things that are out there uh, bestiality all these things started becoming well and it's true if you if you block god's standard where do you draw the line you can't where, what line are you going to draw once you say that God's standard is not the standard? Where do you draw a line? And you can't. And as all of these things start becoming more and more prevalent, we're closer and closer to God returning and saying enough is enough. The promised land in Canaan was so evil and most of it was sexual, sexual evils and, and worship of idols. They were so bad that they, when they used the word sex, they did no distinction on whether it was what we would call good and bad stuff. There was no distinction whatsoever in their land. And God judged them. Sodom and Gomorrah was the same way. We always think of Sodom and Gomorrah as homosexuality, but it was every sexual sin that was going on. You know, and this is why... We are at that cusp. Everything is now breaking loose. We have said this one, this one is okay, and we've taken God's standard away. The rest of them are starting to come out in force. And the more they come out, the more it will be the days of Noah. I believe the, day, the days of Noah were just that bad. Everything was just, sex was rampant. Even in the Roman and Greek Empire, at toward their ending days, Sex was rampant. Pornography was rampant. It wasn't in the same way we get it in books and stuff and movies. It was live theater. That was totally pro pro pornographic. It was act activities that were pornographic every day, pictures that were pornographic, that were carved and, and everything that were out there. It was rampant, and God destroyed their nations. We're seeing the same thing happen today and their pornography was just as bad as the pornography that we have getting. You know, we, if, you, if you want to get into the pornography world, and I don't recommend it, you'll find every form of sexual perversion being practiced in pornography. And that's the way it's been done throughout the ages. See, I really didn't 
I really didn't think back then they did that. I heard people all reading the Bible. I figured they would never do that because they didn't have that in the Bible. And then when I read it now, it's like, this is like today. It's like you're reading today's book. Nothing new under the sun, including no new sins, no new activities. Uh, it's all been out there. And right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. That was Satan's temptation, that you will be like God. And then when, you know, and I never understood, you know, Adam is standing right there next to Eve because it says she took the fruit and gave to her husband who was with her. She's having a conversation with the serpent being led into sin that he knows better of and he doesn't say, he, he doesn't it. say boo. It's his fault then. It really is. In many ways, it is his fault. He did not do the job of the husband to protect his wife. Now, there wasn't the separation as much as at that time, but still, he did not. He's the one that God created. He's the one that was put in charge. He's the one that God said, don't touch this fruit. He should have been, you know, he should have almost strangled the serpent, you know, and taken care of this problem, or at least walked away with his wife. So I've always had problems with that whole thing. He did not protect his wife. Because he was the first one to be created. He was the first one created. He was the one told, don't, don't eat this fruit. And, you know, it says that they're there by the tree, which means I don't think this was the first time that they were by the tree. I think they kind of passed by every day, and some days, and, and every day they stopped by, they stopped a little longer. Why? Why can't we? Why can't we eat? Why can't we eat this fruit? Why? Why can't? Can't we do this? It looks good. It looks wonderful. But you know, we do the same thing to sin in our own lives. So many times, I will I will talk with somebody, and they're going, "Well, what can I do before I've crossed the line? Turn around, run as far from it as possible. That's how close you should be to it." You do not get and say, how close can I get to a sin? You know, you've got a drinking problem, stay out of the bar. Stay out of the, stay out of the, out of the alcohol store, period. Don't go to the party where you know they're going to be drinking if you've got a problem with that, with that problem. Uh, if you've got a problem with lust and fornication, do not be watching... You don't watch X-rated movies. Probably don't want to watch R-rated movies that push the limits. Don't even watch the romance ones. Yeah, don't watch romance ones. What really that always um, it always comes in my head what you say when we sin, and it's like joy for us. And I'm thinking, and if we know it's sin, and we're thinking it's joy, but it's not. But I always think like when you're saying that, you know what you're doing, and you shouldn't be doing it. Well, the world, it is, they're getting something out of it, you know, at least temporarily. Because if you didn't have joy, you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, there wasn't something enjoyable in the sin, you wouldn't do it. The problem is for us as Christians, if we try to sin, I've had this, I've done it. I have done it where I go, I know this is wrong, but God, I'm just going to do it anyway, and it was a miserable experience. It wasn't fun at all. There was no fun in it at all because I knew better. So for us as Christians... What little joy there was in the sin is no longer there because we just get convicted. Either while we're even before we're either before we're doing it while we're doing it, and definitely after we do it.
the world also knows that it's wrong, especially initially. The first time they do something wrong, they know their conscience bothers them. Now, they may do it so often that their conscience gets pushed down and burnt and, and scorched. But every once in a while, the conscience is very resilient, and it'll pop up and say, uh, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And, and then we'll push, they'll push it back down or respond, which they don't usually respond. <laughs> but as a Christian, we have a real hard time with it because we can't push it down. Because it's not just our conscience speaking to us as Christians. It's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is yelling in our ears not to do something as we do it. No, it makes you fall down. Yeah, so, I, I told you not to go that direction. You know, why, why are you doing that? And what's really bad is we get back up and do it anyway. <laughs> uh, but it's really critical for us that we walk in the in God's grace and mercy, not to use it as a license to sin, but that if and when we do fall down, we know that he is merciful and gracious enough to accept us back. And this is the beauty of understanding our relationship with him. He is the prodigal, we are the prodigal son, and he is the father waiting to welcome us back no matter what we do, no matter how many times we do it, because you notice in the prodigal son, it said he wasted his money in riotous living. Now, it leaves that to our imagination. Everybody's de definition of riotous living is going to be different. I'm sure it involved alcohol and parties. Probably in involved fornication in, in the process. And he had lots of friends while he had money. Just like anybody in the world has lots of friends when they have money. And as soon as they run out of money, they're left alone so that all those friends go find somebody else that has money, foolish enough to spend it all on them. And this is what happens, unfortunately, with many of our athletes that, that come up out of the inner city that have never had money. They bring all their friends along with them to enjoy their, their bounty. And their friends suck them dry of all their money and disappear. And it's sad, and they're warned. They've got financial counselors that try to warn them, don't do this, don't do this. But they feel an obligation to help their buddies, try to drag them up out of the, out of the inner city and end up having problems. And this is the way the world goes. They flock together because there's kind of some protection. I, I'm not bad off. All my friends are this way. So I'm really not that bad. And usually I point to two or three of my friends that are worse than me in the, in the process. And so I take solace in the fact that I'm not the worst one of the group. And the sad thing is we never look at the ones that are better than us in the group. It's always we're better than, than a number of the other people. Uh, the, the sinner will never look and say, well, I got a problem. They're, those five people are better than me, but these six are not. I'm going to look at the six that aren't better than me. Not, not the five that are better than me. Because when you look at somebody being better, then it's going to drive you to the fact that you might not be as good as you think you are. And then you have to wonder about when I stand before God. Most people are afraid of the day they stand before God. Am I, have I been good enough to, to please God? The world will say, well, I hope so. 
The biblical answer is no, you haven't been good enough to please God because you're not perfect. This is the great news for us as Christians. We are not trying to please God to earn heaven. We are just saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus Christ and I need you. And he clothes us in righteousness. I love it when people will go, well, you know, you don't know if you're good enough to go to heaven. I go, I absolutely know that I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I absolutely know that you're not good enough. And go, what do, you, what do you mean? I go, God says that all have sinned. All have fallen short. All our righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. None of us are good enough to go to heaven. And this is the important thing that we need to keep in mention in our own life. If we start thinking proudly and highly of ourselves, we don't deserve God. We don't deserve heaven. And yet he gave it to us. We need to really understand who we are. Yes, God says we're perfect, but I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I need to be sanctified. That drives me into the word of God to learn how to be sanctified. I want to know, I want to read his word and say, God, what does it mean to be your follower? And Jesus says, to obey me. What a hard standard we have. <laughs> obey God. And not just be obedient most of the time. Some of the time, most of the time, all the time. We cannot do that. That standard is so far beyond us because of our sin nature. The more time we spend with God, the more the sin nature is crucified, the more it is in submission to God. But it's still going to stick out there. It's still deceptfully wicked. And one of the things I keep saying our heart is deceitfully wicked and God just shines a deeper and deeper light. As we, get, as we get bits and pieces of it taken care of, he shines a light deeper and brighter. And then we get to see what's deeper in there. Well, the way I've described it, you know, he starts out with like a 20-watt bulb or candle. Mm -hmm. Then he puts a 20-watt bulb in it. Then he puts a 60-watt bulb. Then he puts a you know, hundred. Then he hits it with a 10 million watt uh, candle power, candle power flashlight. And says, "We're not quite at the bottom yet, but now you get to really see how bad you are." And then, if somehow we manage to clean that up, he says, "Well, you thought you thought the million was good. Let me put this billion power candle on your on your heart." But you, we all know what this is like, though. If we look in a room that just has a candle, the room can look really clean and not so d dusty. You put a 100-watt log bulb in that room, and it's like, uh, get that candle back in here. There's too much dust and dirt in this room. I don't want to see it. God does that in our heart. He keeps increasing the wattage of the light. He is light, and he says, okay, I'm just going to show you a little bit. Why? How horrendous would it have been if God showed you, wherever you are right now, knowing your sin, how horrendous would it have been for you to see your sin that you see now when you first got saved? It would have driven you so far away from God. God, there's no way I, could, no way I can ever get over that, so I'm just going to go right back to my, to my old lifestyle. So God very wisely shows us a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and then as we walk with him longer, now we start seeing our life in a very unusual and different way. Paul said that he saw himself as the chiefest of sinners. 
Now, many commentators will tell you that he was speaking of his old days when he first got saved. I do not buy that. I think that he saw himself, God, it was shining a light, because when he first got saved, he thought he was a pretty good guy. You know, he, yes, he was persecuting the church, but he was doing it out of zeal for God, and he was a Pharisee. He thought he was a good guy. At the end of his life, I believe that he was starting to see himself the way God saw him without Jesus and started realizing, you know what? I have a lot of problems with bad thoughts. I have a lot of problems with forgiveness. I have a lot of problems with these, these ideas. And he started to really realize, I have a problem. Yeah. And I'm starting to, the more I walk with God and the deeper I'm walking with God and the more I've got, and more things I've knocked out of my life, the more God shines that light down and going, God, I am more awful than I ever thought that I was. Yeah. And he's really revealing the depth of depravity in the heart. And he will keep doing that for us. And every time we think we've cleared it, then he'll shine a light a little brighter and show us there's some more. There's a little more. There's a little more. I am so much looking forward to the day that I die and I get a glorified body <laughs> and don't have to worry about sin anymore. No more corners, no more dark heart. The, the heart will be completely torn out with a stony heart and a new heart of spirit and flesh will be put in place that does not desire to sin. We will rule in the millennial kingdom with no desire for sin and will be beyond the capability of sinning because we've made our choice here. And we will have our glorified body. I am looking forward to the day when I'm not even tempted by sin. And God says, this is, this is, you're perfect finally. I said you were perfect, now you are perfect. And it will be, be that way for all of eternity. From, from basically resurrection, God, uh, from the time we're saved, God says, you're perfect. But when you die and walk into his presence, he says, now you really are perfect. And for the rest of eternity, we will be perfect. Not tempted to lie, not tempted to steal, not tempted to manipulate or, or hurt somebody or get our way by, by manipulation. We will be perfect, wanting to serve, wanting to honor people, wanting to, to see them lifted up. You know, you know, and I'm kind of looking forward to heaven as well. You know, a lot of people say they're looking forward to meeting people like Peter and Paul and, and John. I've told you, I want, to meet guy, I, want to meet, I want to meet the widow that gave the two pennies. I want to know what the rest of her story is. You gave, your two, you gave the last of your money. What did God do for you? you know, did you go home and die that night? Did God give you a great blessing? I really believe that God gave her a great blessing for her position. You know, I want to, I'd love to, I, she's one of the ones I want to seek out and say, I, I just want to, what happened to you after you gave those two pennies that God, that Jesus praised you for? You know, I want to meet some of these unsung, unsung heroes of the Bible that people don't ever think about. Yeah? yeah? I want to know where the kids sometimes. Huh? I want to know where the kids <laughs> 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 Yeah. But, but these are the things that I, you know, I'm, look, I'm wanting to go meet these people that are the little side characters of the stories that got praised. Well, I will give you Chuck Smith's answer on that. Are you going to be stupider up in heaven than you are today? 
That was his answer. That was every time he said he was asked, "Are you going to know people in heaven?" He goes, "Are you going to be stupider in heaven than you are on earth?" So, yes, we will know people and we will be known. The Bible literally tells us we will be known as we are known. So who we really are is what people will know. Who we are in our spirit. Because this is going to be very important. Huh? Glorified spirit. Because I have looked at this, because I have shared with various people, you know, who I, you know, I used to have a really, really bad temper and nobody wanted to be anywhere near me. People go, you? I go, yeah, if you'd have known me <laughs> back then, you wouldn't have wanted to know me. You know, so this is where, as we grow with God, those people are going to know, be able to recognize where, where I am because they're going to know me as God sees me, and he's, they're going to know me as that. We will be known as we are to be known, not as we were known. And so we're going to know each other glorified and there'll be maybe some supernatural aspect to it and who knows how it's going to be maybe we walk around heaven with a name tag i don't know <laughs> i'm just feeling like because we're brothers we're family like it's just we'll be there yeah i think there will be some kind of collective knowing we are part of the body and my my fingers do know the rest of my body somehow you know it's uh, so I, we will we will know each other. We will recognize each other. How would we know Paul and Peter? Because we really never seen him. Because even they made on on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, uh, John, uh, Peter, John. No, Paul wasn't there at the time. <laughs> Anyway, the three disciples were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and Moses and Elijah shows up. They immediately knew who Moses and Elijah were. Oh, and they never seen them. They had never seen them before. Oh. They, the, the, the Jews didn't even make pictures because they figured that it was creating images, images that can compete with so God. Well, that was probably a supernatural event. Yeah. Uh, Moses and, jo- and Elisha are standing on the hill with them, and they know them, or Elijah. And they know who they are, and what was Peter? And I love the phrase, Peter, because he did not know what to say, said, shall, shall we build a booth for you all up here? You know, Peter, Peter had a habit of, of speaking when he didn't have anything to say. Uh, so we, we will know individuals up there. I believe that we will be able to pick out the people I want to pick out, I'm going to know who they are. How? Who knows? God, God is supernatural. He's got it under his control. Uh, the good news is anything that I learned in heaven, I'm not going to forget. <laughs> I, I hate the idea that I hate that I have forgotten more of the Bible you know, over the years. I keep forgetting things that I know that I know. And, you know, and I kind of know that I've forgotten more than most people know, but it's, it still bugs me that I forget. I'm going to get to heaven and not forget. I'm looking forward to that, not, not forgetting. And, I don't, and I've told you, I don't think we're going to instantly be taught everything there is to know. I think we'll be learning all through eternity. And the good news is we don't forget what we've learned. 20 billion years from now, we'll remember what we were taught when we first got to heaven. <laughs> And, and still remember. And, and we're not going to age. And we won't age. <laughs> or not age the way we age now, anyway, at the very least. Uh, 
So we're going to end here, and we'll talk about uh, the Messianic portion of this chapter next week. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you love and care for us. We ask that you help us learn to follow you, that we will, you will help us learn to surrender to you, and that you will help us to learn to treat each other the way you treat us. And we just thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you.